Um, so I, I just kind of want to jump into things. I was probably like you watching this past uh, couple weeks with this case with Larry Nasser, right? He's the uh, USA gymnastics doctor, Michigan State doctor, who uh, was, uh, you know, sexually molesting dozens and dozens and dozens of these young girls. And it's like, you know, you watch this stuff and it is terrible. I mean, it is just terrible to think about the things that he did, how he abused his power, his position to violate these girls so deeply. And so over the course of the trial, you know, they said that over 150 uh, young women and girls testified in court that he had uh, molested them, he had abused them, and it, and it went on for over two decades. And you think, how in the world could he have gotten away, for, away with this for so long? And it's, it's like, you know, you think about it, it's sickening. It just makes you want to throw up. And, and, and after, you know, all of these girls spoke, he gives a short statement um, basically saying that, you know, hearing all this stuff has, has shaken him to his core and that he's so sorry. But, you know, you hear that and you're like, I don't know, I have serious doubt as to his sincerity that he actually is shaken to his core and that he's sickened over these things as well. But it's interesting, like, to, so, of course, we, we can't know his heart, but we get little glimpses. It's interesting, the, uh, the judge in the case, before her sentencing, of him read a letter that uh, that Nasser recently wrote, and in this letter it says he he was defending his medical care. So this is he wrote this to the court. So just a short time before the trial, he was defending his medical care. He was manipulated, he said, into pleading guilty, and he accused these women of lying. In this letter, this is, this is a quote from the letter. He said, "I was a good doctor." because my treatments worked. And those patients that are now speaking out are the same ones that praised and came back over and over, NASA wrote. The media convinced them that everything I did was wrong and bad. They feel I broke their trust. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And you hear that, you're like, that's not that far, that long ago. And he was still denying it, still saying he didn't do those things. And so the judge in the case, I don't know how much you've seen of it, she's like absolutely disgusted with this guy. She's disgusted with Nasser, period, but maybe especially this letter. And she reads this letter and she said it proves that he's still a threat, that he still doesn't get it, and he's still a threat, he's still a danger to other people. And as she sentenced him, she said this, she said, I just signed your death warrant and it was a privilege. It was a privilege. And she uh, sentenced him to 40 to 175 years in prison. And that's on top of the federal sentence that he just got for, for child pornography uh, charges of 60 years in prison. And so the bottom line is Nasser will never get out of prison, right? He's going to die as a prisoner. That's the judgment. And you hear that and you're like, that's pretty harsh judgment, you know? And yet, it's appropriate, you know? Or, or maybe we feel like it, it, it even requires more. 
you know, in, in extreme, we see like in extreme cases involving other people that sometimes judgment is right. Sometimes harsh judgment is appropriate. You see that with guys like Larry Nasser. Well, this weekend, we're going to be digging into a passage in Daniel chapter 5. We're continuing this series that we've been in, in the book of Daniel, over the past few weeks. And we're looking at a passage that's all about judgment, about harsh judgment, about appropriately harsh judgment. And this one is against the last reigning king of Babylon. And as we'll see here in a few minutes, he deserved it. Like we look at Nasser and we're like, harsh judgment, he deserved it. This guy, this king is another guy who deserved it. And as we look at this, I want you to ask yourself a question. I like, I like us to be thinking about something and trying to apply it to our lives as we're digging into this each week. Here's the question that I want you to be asking yourself and honestly begin to answer as we talk about this here this weekend. Here's the question. What do I deserve? Right? So, so... This guy, this king, as we'll see here in a minute, bad dude. He deserved the, the judgment that he got. What do I deserve? Because none of us are Larry Nasser, right? None of us are, are this you know, king, this evil king, Babylonian king. But none of us are perfect saints either, right? So you'd be asking yourself that question, what do I deserve, Okay. So let's jump into it. Grab a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 5, or you could open the Grace Church app, 1330 app, to Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. And as you're flipping there, I want to give you a little bit of, uh, of uh, information on the timeline here, because the timeline is really important. So last week we were in chapter 4, right? And some years have passed. We saw this with other chapters as well. Some years have passed between chapter 4 and chapter 5, somewhere between 20 and 30 years. So chapter 4 was all about Nebuchadnezzar. It was kind of at the end of, of Nebuchadnezzar's life, at the end of his reign, somewhere in the last 10, 12 years. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562. So chapter four is somewhere like in the early 570s BC. By the time we get to chapter five, we're at the very end of the reign of the Babylonian empire, their, their reign of destruction. And so they were defeated in 539 BC. So, here, so here's like a quick summary for you. So last week we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is like the greatest king in the history of Babylon, right? After Nebuchadnezzar, um, a son of him reigns for a, a brief time after him, and he's assassinated. The assassinator then reigns for a few years, and he dies. His son takes over for him. He reigns a short time, but he's assassinated as well. And then one of the guys that assassinates him, a guy named Nabonidus, takes over as king. Okay, And Nabonidus is technically the last king in the history of the Babylonian Empire. So he reigned between 555 and 539 BC. And so sometime during his reign, Nabonidus' reign, he gets like relocated. So it's, it's interesting reading a little bit about this. Like he kind of had these weird uh, religious beliefs and he was a bit of an embarrassment, I guess, to, to the kingdom and some, some people, they didn't want him to be there. And so they sort of, he still was king, but they relocated him to another area. And as they did that, his son, a guy named Belshazzar, they made the acting king. So he was never officially the king, but he was the acting king in his place. And chapter 5 is all about this guy, Belshazzar. 
And so let, let me say this, before I move on past it, let me say this about Belshazzar. So this is, this is an interesting thing. I'd probably be missing something important if I didn't say this. So King Belshazzar, King Nabonidus' son, for a long time, was um, uh, he was one of those guys that people that were skeptical of the Bible, they looked at, of the accuracy of the Bible, they looked at and they're like, what is this talking about? When you look at the history of the Babylonian kings, there is nobody named Belshazzar. He's not listed in there. The last king is Nabonidus. And so they look at that and they're like, yeah, see, it's the Bible. you can't trust the Bible. The Bible's not true. It caused them to question the accuracy because, there, again, there's no Belshazzar in the history of Babylonian kings. There you go. Bible's full of errors, right? Well, in the 19th century, I think this is so interesting, in the 19th century, this cuneiform tablet was discovered and they deciphered it and it spoke of Belshazzar, King Belshazzar, who was a guy who was Nabonidus' son. So they didn't know that before the 19th century, right? So the first, you know, hundreds of years of church history, people were like, I don't know who this guy is. He's actually not listed in the historical records of Babylon. Then they find these records in the 19th century, and it talks about this guy, Belshazzar, who led the kingdom for about 10 years while his father was in exile as the acting king, but never officially the king, right? So it's fascinating, just like the book of Daniel says, just like the book of Daniel claims. So I tell you that because like, we could trust the Bible. We could trust that the Bible is true and accurate. It gives us confidence. So that being said, Belshazzar, let's talk about him for a second. He's a rotten dude. Like this guy was an absolute fool. He was the lowliest of the lowliest, apparently all about himself, about all about his pleasure. He was a selfish guy. He is the Larry Nasser of the story, right? And chapter five is all about the last night of Belshazzar's life. And I want you to get a feel for this, okay? So here, here's, this is the last night of his life. I want you to, to understand like what he's doing before we jump into the text here. So the Medo-Persians, the Medes and the Persians are coming. And so these are the people that would be the next world power after the Babylonians, right? And so they're coming, they're the next empire. Belshazzar is the acting king, would have known at some level, we don't know, you know how much specifically he knew, but he would have known at some level that they were coming. And so you'd think that a king who knew that the enemy was approaching would be preparing for the enemy, right? Like he would be preparing his people for war, to fight, to defend their land. But instead, what we find Belshazzar doing in chapter 5, the last day of his life, is having a party. Like, that's what he does. He has a party. And I was reading a little bit about what like theologians were describing this party as. And we, we might miss this a little bit by just reading the text ourselves, chapter 5 ourselves. But you know, theologians kind of dig into the context and setting stuff a little bit more, and they describe it this way. A drunken orgy that included worshiping of demon gods and making fun of the one true God. Like, th this is what Belshazzar was doing as the enemy was approaching to wage war against him. And so just, just this drunken, debased, raunchy debauchery, like that's what he's engaging in. 
And so if that's not enough, if extreme drunkenness and wild sexuality and demon worship isn't enough, this model king tells his servants to go in and grab the goblets that they had stolen, that they had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And so years earlier, decades earlier, when they ransack Israel, they ransack Judah and Jerusalem, they destroy the temple, but they take everything valuable out of it, right? And so they take these goblets. And so these would have been some of the most sacred and holy objects in the temple. These are things that were dedicated to God. And Belshazzar wants them to be part of his wild party. Like that's, that's his heart really just to mock the God of Israel, to show you know, that, that he is stronger than these other gods. And so you see his heart here, just like we see Larry Nasser's heart when he writes this letter to the court claiming his innocence. You see Belshazzar's heart with God. To him, God is nothing, right? He's nothing, not just irrelevant, but worthy of being mocked, worthy of being ridiculed. And so finally, God brings this guy, this knucklehead, this terrible king, to justice and judgment. So let's look at it together. So this is Daniel chapter 5, starting in verse 1. So King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them, which, by the way, was a no-no for a king. That's like seen as something that's below the king. The king doesn't go get drunk with his nobles, with his officials. Again, kind of tells you a little bit about the kind of guy Belshazzar was. So for a thousand, he has this great banquet for a thousand officials, drinks wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So when it says Nebuchadnezzar, his father, some translations translate that as predecessor. So he wasn't literally his father, but it just kind of calls him that his predecessor is what it means. So uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank from them, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. See what I'm saying? Like, this is, he is a quality guy, right? It's the kind of guy that he is. Well, look what happens next, because his arrogance and his mocking get changed very, very quickly. Look at verse 5. Suddenly... The fingers of a human hand, imagine this, appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as it wrote, the hand as it wrote, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees began knocking, right? Like, can you imagine how that must have been? Like, that is, that is some freaky stuff. We get freaked out by clowns. Imagine how freaky it would be for a hand to just appear and write stuff on the wall, something on the wall, just a hand, right? Write something on the wall, and you don't know what it says. And so it freaks him out. He goes from being drunk and having a great time, revelry, right, to his knees knocking together. By the way, this is where we get uh, that expression, the, that idiom, the writings on the wall, right? Man, the writings on the wall with that guy, we use that lots of, of different times. You know what that means, right? What it means is it's clear what's coming and what's coming ain't good. It's clear what's coming 
and what's coming ain't good, right? That's what we mean by when, some, when, the, when the writing's on the wall. It's like what we say um, when the Browns draft a quarterback. We're like, uh-oh, the writing's on the wall for that dude. He's in trouble because every quarterback that goes to the Browns is in trouble. Stinky time for him. Writing's on the wall for him, right? That's what we mean. It's clear what's coming and what's coming ain't good, right? Well, that's not just true for Browns quarterbacks, but it's true for Belshazzar too. Look at verse 7. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to the wise, to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around their neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So let me, let me clarify there for a second. Third highest ruler. This is why, this is why it says third and not second. Remember, he's not the highest ruler in the kingdom of Babylon. His dad is, Nabonidus is. And so it goes, Nabonidus is the actual king. Uh, Belshazzar is the acting king. And whoever can translate this and tell him what it means is going to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Make sense? Okay, so verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. But the queen, hearing the voice of the king and the nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He'll tell you what the writing means, right? So the queen says, man, you got a guy in your kingdom who can tell you what this means. You forgot all about him. Daniel's kind of the forgotten man. He's an old man at this point. So he's around 80 years old, maybe even a little bit older than 80. And the king doesn't even know who he is. And up to that point, he doesn't care who he is, right? Daniel's a forgotten man, but the queen remembers him. Maybe it, some of the, um, the commentators I read said this, this actually might have been the queen mother, or it could have been uh, even Nebuchadnezzar's wife, like Queen Queen ago, right? And so she's like, wait a minute, I remember there's a guy who has special abilities from the gods, and he can interpret these dreams, right? And so Daniel's brought in, and he's told if he can read the writing and tell the king what it means, then he'll be given great honor. He'll be clothed in purple. He'll, have, he'll look like Mr. T. He'll have a gold chain around his neck, right? And he'll be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And I love Daniel's response here. So Daniel, you know, he says, this is all the stuff that we're going to do. You could just tell me what this means. And Daniel's response is great because he's like, eh, I don't care about any of that stuff. None of that stuff's important to me, right? But I'll still tell you what your dream means. Look at verse 18. Your majesty, says Daniel talking, your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and people of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, 
he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. We looked at this last week. This is chapter 4, right? He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belteshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Belshazzar, excuse me, not Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's name. You, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from this temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. Then you praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand, the freaky hand, that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Ready? This is what it says. This is what the hand wrote on the wall. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Here's what these words mean. So here's this translation. Ready? Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and he's brought it to an end. God has numbered the days of your reign and he's brought it to an end. Tekel, he's weighed on the scales and you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You've fallen short. Perez, which is the singular of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So that's the dream. That's, I'm sorry, the, uh, the writing on the wall. That's what it means. And I think about that, and I think it's really interesting. It's fascinating to me because of actually where Daniel goes in his conversation with Belshazzar. Because he doesn't just talk about Belshazzar. He doesn't just talk about, you know, um, what, what this means and, and Belshazzar's life and the choices he makes and stuff like that. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar as well. And I think it's really interesting for us to look at the differences between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we've said this throughout the series, he spent most of his life as a rotten dude. Like he was a violent, brutal, oppressive, arrogant guy who worshipped false gods. Like that's who he was. But in the end, as we saw last week in chapter 4, it seems like he was legitimately changed, right? Like it seems like he was humbled and broken and submissive finally to the rule of God in his life. God gives him one more chance and he takes the chance and he humbles his heart and he acknowledges that God is real, that God, the God of the universe is real. But Belshazzar is different. And for whatever reason, God doesn't give him one more final chance like he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. And we don't know why, right? Only God knows. He didn't, he didn't have to do that with Nebuchadnezzar, but he did. Perhaps God knew that Nebuchadnezzar would change and Belshazzar wouldn't. We don't know. Maybe that's why he didn't give him any more chances. But he's arrogant and evil, and God's justice demands judgment on King Belshazzar. That's what he deserves. God's judgment. God's harsh judgment. God's appropriate harsh judgment. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Belshazzar, the writing's on the wall, bud. You had your chance. 
Your days are numbered and they've come to an end. You've been weighed on the scales of justice and you've come up short. Your kingdom is going to be conquered and it's going to be divided. It's going to be given to others. That's, that's, that's what the writing on the wall is, right? Here's what's coming and what's coming ain't good. Well, how do you think Belshazzar would respond to that? Like, how do you think, what do you think he does? Do you think he humbles himself and repents in sackcloth and ashes and, you know, is deeply broken because of his arrogance before God? Nope. He does exactly what Daniel tells him not to do. He clothes Daniel in purple. He makes him Mr. T, puts the gold chains around him, and he makes him the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Here's what it means, King Belshazzar. Here's what it means. Yay! Thank you, Daniel. Now here's a whole bunch of stuff that you don't want. Thanks for telling me what it means. That's his response. Not humility. Not brokenness. Not submission. Like we talked about last week with Nebuchadnezzar. He does exactly what Daniel tells him not to. He honors Daniel. And how long do you think that lasts for Daniel? Daniel doesn't care anyway. But how long do you think it lasts? A couple hours. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That's how it ends for Belshazzar. He gets what he deserves. And God didn't delay in bringing it, did he? So so let's talk about it. That's chapter 5, right? Let's talk about it, and let's talk about what we get from this. So as I think about chapter 5, there's a lot of similarities, right, between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And so as I think about chapter 5, I think, you know, there's a lot of things that we could potentially pull from it that we pulled from chapter 4, you know, because Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a very similar guy. He's an arrogant guy. He's a godless guy, right? But he responds with brokenness. We talked about this last week, with brokenness, with humility, with submission, and ultimately trusting the rule of God in his life. Belshazzar doesn't. We see the results of that. Like we could spend time talking about that and what that means. And maybe for some of you, that's what you need out of this. That's what you need out of chapter five. It's what you need out of chapter four. And it's also what you need out of chapter five. And if that's the case, I encourage you to continue to allow God to rub into your heart and your mind. Like what does it mean to be broken before him? What does it mean to be submissive to his rule in your life? So maybe for some of you, that's what you need to get out of this. What I want to do, what I want to take the rest of our time looking at is I want to observe a couple things from this text in the context of my first question to you. Do you remember what my first question was? What do I deserve? Right? I hope that's been kind of ruminating in your mind here for the last 20 minutes or so. What do I deserve? So this is really a chapter when we kind of boil it all down. This is really a chapter about judgment and punishment or blessing and reward, right? It's not about judgment and punishment that Belshazzar receives and blessing and reward that Daniel receives. And so I want to I spend our time looking at these. Let's look at the, first, the bad one first, the one that we don't like talking about as much, punishment and judgment. Here's what I'd say we learn from how God deals with Belshazzar um, in, in this chapter specifically. Ready? If you're, if you're somebody who's taking notes, this is the first thing I'd love for you to write down. Here it is. God ultimately brings punishment and judgment 
to those who are his enemies. God ultimately brings judgment and punishment, punishment and judgment to those who are his enemies. And, you know, if we're honest and if we, if we have hearts, if we feel, we hear this and it's hard for us, right? Because the idea of harsh judgment and like uh, harsh punishment, like terminal judgment, ultimate judgment, sometimes could feel like almost excessive to us, right? Because that's it, you know? You get no more chances. It's over. It's done with. And, and, and this is a statement that, that makes me feel really uncomfortable saying it, even though I never knew Belshazzar, right? Still, he's a person who has a feeling. Listen, Belshazzar is in hell right now. Right? I'm talking, I'm talking about judgment and punishment. It's a guy who is absolutely, fundamentally, to his core, godless, right? And so for the last 2,600 years, he's been in hell. And he'll remain there for the next 2,600 years and forever. I don't know about you, but think about that. Like, that's really hard for me to think about. That's really hard for me to wrap my mind around about, except that he chose it, right? Like, he continually rejected God over and over and over again in his life. And by the end, he didn't just want to reject him. He wanted to mock him. He wanted to ridicule him, and so he chose it. Like this idea of ultimate judgment and punishment for us is uncomfortable because, you know, we talk a lot in here at, at Grace Church about, you know, God loving us and continually calling us and pursuing us and wanting a relationship with us, and you know, us then responding to his love, us responding to his forgiveness and his grace, and the Bible is clear about those things. That's why we talk about them. Like God loves you. God pursues you. He desires to have that you have a relationship with him. But please don't be confused. We 100% believe all of the Bible not just the parts about God's love and him wanting us to have eternal life in paradise with him one day, not just those parts, but also the parts about his judgment and about his wrath and punishment and hell. Like, that's all real too. We can't accept one without accepting the other as well. And Belshazzar's actions, Belshazzar's actions made him God's enemy. He was sinful. That's what he chose to do. He was evil at times. He was selfish. He was arrogant. He could be wicked. He was God's enemy. And as God's enemy, he was on the receiving end of God's punishment, right? Of his harsh judgment. It was what he deserved. God's justice demanded it. And guys, Let's, let's go from now thinking about Belshazzar to thinking about us. Guess what? We're no different. I can be and I have been all of those qualities, those things I just described Belshazzar as being. I can be sinful. So can you. I can be evil at times. So can you. 
I've been selfish timeless times in my life. Arrogant, wicked, and so can you. Like, we could be nice, too. We could be kind. We could be generous. We could be loving. But I promise you, Belshazzar was those things at times as well. But see, here's the thing. In God's economy, all those good things don't just make up for all of the bad things, all the times that were really nice to people, that we're kind, that we're giving and generous, that we love people. It doesn't just wash away all of the bad stuff as well. So I'd say this, I'd add to our sentence, our statement, this. Just like Belshazzar, our actions make us enemies of God too. Our actions make us enemies of God, too. Just like Belshazzar, our actions deserve God's punishment. Our actions deserve God's judgment. God brings punishment and judgment on his enemies, and our actions make us God's enemies. I told you this is the bad news, right? What we deserve is God's punishment, his harsh judgment. That's the bad news. So that's out of the way. We're glad we got that out of the way, right? Now let's talk about the good news. And as I first start talking about the good news, it's going to sound like more bad news. Let me just warn you. This is actually really good news. Here's Here's the good news. There's nothing we can do to change it. There's nothing we can do to change it. There's no way that you can make up for the rotten things that you've done in your life. Even if you and I are perfect the rest of our lives and we take all of our money and all of our possessions and we give them to the poor and we go to church every single day and we spend all of our available time praying and reading in the Bible, it doesn't change it. There's nothing that you and I could do to change our status as God's enemy. That's that's good news. It sounds like bad news but it's actually the best news that there is. And it's so essential for us to understand. Let me be crystal clear here. This is so important. There is nothing I can do to make God love me anymore or change my status as his enemy. Nothing I could do. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore or to change your status as his enemy. I can't do anything, but I can receive what's already been done. I can accept. I can say yes, and I can become his child. If you're a note taker, here's the the next part. This is where we start to really bring the good news in. God brings blessing and reward to his children who say yes to him. God brings, so he brings punishment and judgment to his enemies, and our actions make us his enemies. But man, he brings blessing and reward to his children who say yes to him. Look at Daniel. Look at Daniel. What was Daniel all about as we've looked at these first five chapters of the book of Daniel? What's he all about? Himself? The Babylonians? No. He's about God, right? What's the most important thing about Daniel that we pull from these first five chapters. God, right? From the time of his youth to his years in Babylon, who did he continually say yes to? 
God, right? Do you think Daniel was trying to earn something from God or prove something to God? I don't think so. I think he just trusted the one that he called father. God was his father and he was his child. It wasn't something that he did. It was that he accepted. It was that he received. It was that he said yes to God and he lived as his child. And, and how did this turn out for Daniel when he did that? When he lived that way, how did it turn out for him? Well, he was blessed and he was rewarded, right? Like we, get, we, see, we see a little bit of it in the end of chapter 5. He's given purple to wear, like you know, the color of royalty. He's given his Mr. T necklaces. He's made the third highest ruler in the country. Well, it doesn't last. Literally, it lasts hours. But it's a blessing, I guess, right? It's a little bit of a reward for honoring God. How else does he receive blessing and reward? Well, this is interesting. You know, so, so Babylon, over these first few weeks, we've talked about how like brutal Babylon was to Israel. And Daniel, you know, his family would have been killed. He would have been, you know, taken as a young boy over to Babylon and been like brainwashed and all of that sort of stuff. Like they were brutal. As brutal as they were, the, this was it. This was He was the last king. Belshazzar and Nabonidus were the last king. And then Medo-Persia, the next world power, was actually kind to Israel. And they actually let the people that had been taken captive, that were in captivity in Babylon, forcibly removed from Israel, they let them go back. If any, the, 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 uh, the king, King Cyrus at the time, made, sent a statement, a decree out. You read about this in Ezra chapter 1. It's kind of neat how the Bible is all connected. But you read about this in Ezra chapter 1. This king, Cyrus of Persia, sends out this decree and he says, anybody that's of Israelite descent that wants to go back to Israel, you're free to go. You're free to go. And then he goes further and he says, and if anyone else knows a Jew, an Israelite who wants to go back, you got to give them some gold and silver and goods and livestock for their journey. Right? Like reward, blessing for those that are the children of God. And then, of course, there's another reward that we're pretty sure that, pretty confident that Daniel received. That's eternal life with his father. Sad as it is to think about Belshazzar or anyone else in hell, it's equally joyful and comforting to think of Daniel and anyone else in heaven with God. Not because he or anybody else earns it, but because they said yes to what God had to offer. Guys, that's the future for any of us that say yes to Jesus. So let me end with this. And go back to my first question. What do you deserve? What do you deserve? Are you like Belshazzar? Are you like one of God's enemies? Because we all start out that way, right? But we don't all end that way. Are you like one of his enemies still, deserving punishment and judgment and hell because of your actions? Or are you more like Daniel, a child of God who said yes to him, who's received what he has to offer, who's accepted what God has to offer, who's now deserving of blessing and reward and eternal life? See, Daniel lived 
before Jesus, right? Daniel lived before Jesus. He walked this earth before him. And so Daniel's sins were paid, still paid for by Jesus, but applied retroactively to Daniel's account, right? You and I live on the other side of the cross. And God has made it clear for us that saying yes to Jesus is the key to moving from the enemy of God to being a child of God. So my question is, have you said yes to Jesus? Have you accepted what he offers us? Do you want what he has to offer so that we move from being his enemy because of our actions to being his child, worthy of blessing and eternal life? Guys, I want to challenge you. If you haven't, can do it now. You can do it today. You don't have to wait. I'm not here right now. I mean, there's lots of people that know Jesus in this room. Staff that would love to talk to you. Grace group leaders. Lots of others. Don't wait. In just a few weekends, we're going to do baptisms here. We've talked about it now for the last couple of weeks. We have this uh, thing for kids here after the last service this weekend, explaining baptism. I want to challenge you. Have you said yes to Jesus? And if you have, have you stood up in front of others and said, I'm with him, I identify with Jesus, I'm not ashamed to admit it and gotten baptized. It's not too late to do it. If you're interested, we would love to help you with that. But the first thing is to say yes to Jesus.